The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Nancy Zucker. She is the director of the Center for Eating Disorders at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. She is also an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University School of Medicine. She is the co-author of an intriguing article in the journal Pediatrics titled, Psychological and Psychosocial Impairment in Preschoolers with Selective Eating. And I wanted to have Dr. Zucker on as my guest because of all the topics parents struggle with with young children, I think picky eating or selective eating, as we'll come to find out, is probably top on their list of concerns. So welcome, Dr. Zucker. Thank you so much for having me. One of the things I learned in this report was that we're shifting our terminology now. So rather than saying picky eating, we're calling picky eating selective eating. Is that correct? That is correct. You know, we still haven't probably found the the perfect term, but I think selective eating is a vast improvement over picky eating. Okay. Well, tell me, how did you get interested in this area of research? Really, I got interested because clinically, as a director of a clinical treatment program, parents with a child with selective eating were increasingly presenting for intervention. And when you look to the literature to understand more about whether these kids would grow out of it, how impairing it was, there there wasn't a great deal of information out there. So in order to develop effective interventions, we really needed to learn more about the nature of selective eating. Mm-hmm. Would you say that this is one of those first world problems where we see it more in populations that have adequate resources for food, where we don't have to worry about food and shelter on a regular basis? You know, I, I really don't think so. The data, and this is not data from our study, but other data support that actually as economic level goes down, picky eating is actually higher, right? Mm. And I think that that's because if you don't have a lot of money, you're not going to take any risks about whether your child will like certain things. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that there's a lot that in terms of being afraid to try new foods as one aspect of this as being a very hardwired aspect of a certain percentage of the population that's quite adaptive. And that wouldn't, we wouldn't think that that would just be in more developed countries. Right. Well, I have to say that I think when I've counseled parents with children who are termed picky eaters, there are certain things that I always try to comfort them about. And that one of them is, you know, children have more taste buds than adults have. So things like cruciferous vegetables, like broccoli, taste really strong to children. So we can understand that kind of aversion. And then there's also that children are naturally neophobes. So they're skeptical or cautious when they're presented with something new. And that's probably a good idea in terms of survival. And I also always advised parents never to get into a war with children over food. And I wonder if you can kind of jump off from those pieces of advice and talk a little bit about 
what your experience has been with counseling parents of children who are termed selective eaters. Yeah, no, I, well, I, first of all, I think that those three pieces of advice are all spot on and excellent. Good. I think that certainly it is comforting to know the logic of why children would be this way. I would say in our study, we had three groups. One group was no selective eating. And in that group, children were included in that group of no selective eating if they had typical dislikes, right? So if they had, as you just said, the dislike of of vegetables due to their bitterness, kids not liking broccoli, that was considered typical and normal and wouldn't have made you a selective eater. Mm -hmm. So these were kids that ate within a narrow range of foods and in the middle group, the moderate group, that eating had to affect two domains of functioning. So it had to be that the parent had to make a special meal for the child because the child wouldn't eat anything else. And, for example, it would affect going out to restaurants because the parent would have to bring the food that the child would eat, the child wouldn't eat anything else. And then that's a severe group, which is a very a small group of only 3%. The family couldn't even eat outside of the home because the child's eating was so limited. And I raise that just to say, I think that there's typical development and then it's kind of when does it spring off to be more extremes. And and certainly our severe group is deviating from typical development. Mm -hmm. Would you like to define selective eating, take it from picky eating to selective eating and further clarify the two groups that you had? Sure. So I think in terms of calling it selective eating versus picky eating, right, that's a semantic difference. And the reason why I like selective better than picky is because picky makes it seem like the kids are just difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's some kind of temperament issue, that they're just oppositional. And selective isn't too much better, honestly. You know, if I had my way, I'd probably call them sensory eaters. Yeah. Right? You know, because I, I think that that captures what their food choices are based on. And the definition that we had was just to tell you a little bit more about the study, these were parent reports, right? So that's a limitation. But a strength was that these were two to three hour interviews with the parents in the home. So this is not parents just filling out questionnaires. The interviewers were well-trained to really get at what is typical selectivity, such as disliking vegetables, and and when is it crossing over into impairment. Did you find that there were specific questions that were red flags. Uh, So, for example, for our listeners at home, if they have young children and they're trying to figure out, and I should say that when we talk about young children, these were preschoolers between the ages of two and a little bit younger than six. Yep, you got it. So if a parent is listening and they want to rule out, they want to make sure, gee, my child is just typical behaviors where they're being cautious about foods or they have some foods that they really don't like the taste of versus a more, I think your word sensory eater is really spot on because in reading your research, that's really what jumped off the page to me is that these kids really had some sensory difficulties with foods. And you also have other published data looking at when these kids grow up and then as adults where someone said this eating this apple feels like I'm eating a sponge. Mm-hmm. So yep. are there red flag questions for parents to best identify when they should seek help from their care providers? I think it's a great question. Certainly when the parents see it impairing the child's functioning, right? So these children, when they're presented with a new food, will often gag at the taste of it. Certainly all kids who, you know, well, I won't say all kids, but kids who are, you know, presented with foods that they don't want to eat will get distressed, but they won't necessarily have that severe visceral response to new foods. 
Whereas kids certainly will get into what is known as, you know, food jags, right, where they eat only macaroni and cheese for a week and then they switch to peanut butter and jelly for a week and they do, you know, they have that rigidity. But there's some flexibility in that rigidity, right, in that they're switching foods. And and these kids, it's almost like they lack sensory specific satiety, right? They just don't get tired of these. They stick with these same foods over prolonged periods of time. Mm-hmm. and just can't deviate, even though they want to. And I think that that's also a key distinction. I mean, these kids will say sometimes, you know, wow, that, that actually even smells good, and I wish I could try it, but I just can't try it. Yeah. I'm thinking about the home situation and thinking about some of the ways I've seen parents interact with children. So some parents will say, well, when I introduce something new, I insist that they have just one bite. They can say no, but they just have to have one bite. That's one situation. And I've had other parents who will use punishment. You eat this or you're going to lose something that you really like, or you can sit at this table all night if you need to, but you're going to finish that specific food. And I'm sure you saw the same range of behaviors. Sure, absolutely. And parents of what we would say a true sensitive eater would tell you that none of those work. Right, Right. They have tried, and that, I think that's probably the disenfranchisement of these parents, right? They're, they're being blamed for their child's eating, but they've tried the exact same strategies yeah. as other parents, but their kids just can't go over that line. These kids will go hungry if you can't starve them out to solve the problem, as parents are often told. Yeah. Did you find that many of the children in your study that they had been punished for not eating something? I just, I want to sure. help parents understand that punishment or force-feeding a child is just never the right approach to take. Our data can't speak to that. I can tell you my clinical experience is that parents in their desperation have tried all sorts of strategies, and what that ends up being is if you think about that eating is already incredibly challenging for these children, it's very emotional. Yeah. From it, and adding a layer of force-feeding or adding a layer of threat Right, not only would not help, but certainly would exacerbate eating as an aversive experience. Right. One of the questions that I asked you prior to the show, but I do want to ask you again, and that has to do with children who are breastfed versus formula fed. And there is some good data out there showing that children who have been breastfed are more likely to accept new foods because they've already experienced that flavor through the breast milk. Yeah, no, I think that that is fascinating research. I I think the early kind of development of the gut-brain axis is fascinating. It was not anything that we looked at in this study, Mm -hmm. but it certainly would add another interesting layer to that. It certainly makes logical sense, but at the same time, I always shy away from any kind of parent, you know, know, parents who have made that decision. I, you know, I don't want to make them feel bad about the decisions that they made in the past. And in terms of children's acceptance or not of different foods. Did you look at all at their media exposure? You know, did you find that kids were pretty set in their behaviors based on, say, their exposure to advertising? You are a great researcher. You would design very interesting studies. I think the one thing, you know, related to that that's interesting about these kids is parents are told a lot about role modeling healthy eating, right? Eat fruits and vegetables in front of your kids. What's so fascinating, and again, this is my clinical experience. Our data did not speak to this, and I want to be clear about that, is these children seem impervious to modeling. 
Wow. Right? I mean, they're around other kids that are eating all sorts of foods. You know, they're in a family where there's oftentimes a child who's an adventurous eater. Their parents are dancing with vegetables, singing with vegetables, you know, and, and they, they, just, they just seem unaffected. Yeah. And so I have a hard time believing that, that you know, it, these are they're resilient to advertising would be my hypothesis. Right, right. This is fascinating. Okay, so let's get back to this specific study. And it seems like you have identified two groups of children now. There are some that have this moderate selective eating and some where it's more extreme. So tell me a little bit about the difference between these two groups as well as the control group. Now, you've got your control group is the, the group. Let me make sure I'm understanding this correctly. They might say no to broccoli. They will try foods eventually. And then you've got the children who are more of these sensory eaters where there seems to be a real physical reaction to the food. So separate the two groups that you identified, the moderate sensory eater versus the more extreme? Sure. No, it's a great question. So the severe group is probably easier to talk about because it's smaller. And we, you know, it was just 3% of our sample. Mm-hmm. Thank and, goodness. And yes, yes. And, the, and these were children who actually had comorbid psychiatric diagnoses, right? So these kids, if you were a severe selective eater, your eating was so um, impairing that eating outside of the house was impossible or challenging, you were twice as likely to be diagnosed with a depressive disorder, and you were seven times as likely to be diagnosed with social anxiety, And that was not the case in the moderate group. Those children had higher levels of symptoms of anxiety and depression, but they didn't cross a clinical threshold. And that's important to emphasize. Okay, listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Nancy Zucker. She is the director of the Center for Eating Disorders at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. She's also an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University School of Medicine. And we are targeting one of her recent papers that was published in Pediatrics, and the title is Psychological and Psychosocial Impairment in Preschoolers with Selective Eating. And this is the new term we're going to use for picky eaters, but I like your sensory eater word quite a bit because (laughs) I agree with you in that these kids really are different from the typical what parents have referred to for, you know, so many decades as picky eaters. What do you think is going on with these kids? I think that every sensory sensitivity is on a continuum. Some of us have better vision, better hearing. These kids seem to have stronger taste responses, stronger smell responses, but also they are more sensitive to visual cues. A lot of these kids that I work with are are also more sensitive to how their internal body feels. Of course, taste is internal, but, you know, in terms of their interoceptive signals, like their gut churning and their heart beating. And so the way I describe them is I I think these are just sensitive children. Mm -hmm. You report that this kind of selective eating is highly prevalent in individuals with an autism spectrum disorder. And I know there a lot of dietitians have worked or targeted their work on autism. And it's my understanding that there are some true physiological changes that happen within the gut. And these children, they really have a lot of GI pain, actually, and discomfort from eating. So I'm assuming that maybe you have a fraction of that 3% that are on the autism spectrum, and then maybe you have another group that don't have autism but still exhibit these same behaviors. 
Yeah, so I mean, the, the autism spectrum interface with this, of course, is, is fascinating. The study was looking at, and this was led by, I want to just give acknowledgement to my colleagues, Helen Egger and Adrian Angold, who are developmental epidemiologists. And the, the study was originally designed to try to understand more about psychiatric disorders in preschool, particularly anxiety disorders. And because of that emphasis, they actually intentionally screened out for autism mm. um, in, in this study. So the issue of what it would look like, what these issues look like against the backdrop of an autism spectrum disorder really requires a whole other study, but, but desperately needs to be done. Yeah. And it's interesting that your study also with regard to siblings, if there was a sibling already participating in the study, then the brother or sister could not participate. And I was right. curious about that because I thought, I would anticipate that there may be a familial tendency. So it would be more likely for siblings to exhibit these traits. Yeah, and then, and the reason for that, it has to do with design, right? Siblings are potentially more alike, so the relationship in terms of the variance that they share is different. So there's all these technical statistical reasons for that. But my, I will tell you that well, my clinical experience is that, and this is how parents feel a little bit exonerated, is in the home of a selective eater or a sensory eater, you're also likely to have a, a you know a child who's an adventurous eater. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and I like, I always bring up the model of, of Beverly Tepper, who is at Penn State, I believe, and you know, she studies genetic polymorphisms in terms of bitter taste perception. And her model is if you've got someone who's a sensitive, let's we'll just say a sensitive taster to simplify things, and they've got a personality that's more novelty seeking, then they're going to become a New York chef, right? But if you've got a sensitive taster who is a, a more, has a more anxious temperament, then they're going to show up in my clinic. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how we treat these children. Are there cognitive therapies that we can use with these children? Can we talk them out of something? It sounds like this is a physiological situation where that's maybe not going to work. Yeah, I think that our treatments thus far have been the best that we know how to do, but given our limited understanding of these children, our treatments have necessarily not captured the full picture of it, right? So we've really focused our treatments, focused on the anxiety piece of this. Uh-huh. And as you say, using very kind of cognitive behavioral approaches to address the, the, the fear of approaching new foods, using very thought-focused therapies. And that has been a very logical way to go about it. But because we've missed the sensory piece, it's only been part of the picture. And then we've also missed the disgust piece, the food aversion piece, which we found in our study. And you go at treating disgust differently than you go about treating anxiety. So I think that we have yet to develop a more comprehensive way of of helping parents with this. But addressing those three components, the disgust, the anxiety, and the sensory piece, I think will lead to much better interventions. Yeah, let's talk about that aspect, that disgust experience. Sure. Where does that come from? Lots of different theories, but one popular theory is that we have the experience of disgust so that we avoid things that could potentially contaminate us, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of the behaviors that selective eaters, sensory eaters exhibit are, are consistent with that. Like one common one that drives parents crazy is if a child has, even if they have like a little section plate and they're, let's say the parent is trying desperately to get the child to try the new food and the little, the new food is in the one section 
and they have their favorite food in the other section, and there's a piece of the dislike food that touches yeah. the food that they like. Now the whole plate is ruined, and they're like, "What?" Do you, and they scrape it off, and they do all this thing, and and, and it makes sense if you think about, okay, well, the, the plate is contaminated. Yeah. So are there ways to work with children who have these kinds of disorders? The disgust one, like how do you get over some of those tendencies? Yeah, well, we think so. And people across the country are doing some really innovative things. So the way that you treat disgust is something called recontextualization, right? You kind of change your framework for viewing things, right? So if you think about being a parent, you know, you're, you're doing lots of disgusting things. You're changing diapers. You're dealing with vomit, snot, all that sort of stuff. And if you ask a parent, how do you feel about dirty diapers? No parent is going to say, oh, I love them. But they do this in the service of loving their child, right? So whether they're disgusted by it or not is irrelevant, right? Because it's in this bigger picture. And so I think one of the things that we have to do in our treatments is take kids out from evaluating food like, dislike, use their sensory superpowers so that things are an experience, but they're eating these foods in the service of something bigger, something greater for them. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about the homes that you visited and the, the children. Are there certain environments that seem to be more likely to produce a child with one of these sensory disorders? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and unfortunately our data can't speak to that. I mean, what I would say to that, you know, one of the theories of autism in these sensory-sensitive kids is that that the rigidity in the environment is actually the way that these kids cope with their sensory overload, right? If you're if you're getting so much stimulation from the environment, that creating an environment that is predictable mm-hmm. is one way of helping you cope with that. But that's not a cause. That's more of an effect. Right. So if you've got a child who has some sensory issues with food or selective eating that's beyond the norm, and is there like a tool that parents can go to to say 10 questions and, you know, if you answer three of these, yes, then have your child seen. Is there a, is there something that, or some place that parents can go to kind of assess their child? No, that is a, a great question. That was the first, after this study came out, that was the first thing that came up in the lab was that we, we need to take our data and develop a, a tool for pediatricians to use because there isn't one and there's a desperate need for one. Yeah, you screening know, tools are great. The questions that have been used in research that seem to reliably differentiate picky eaters is they, you know, they ask a parent, you know, is your child a picky eater? And if the parent answers, you know, all the time, often or all the time, then that seems to be, you know, different than parents that say, you know, sometimes. Uh-huh. Yeah. But that's small comfort right. in terms of a screening tool for your audience. Do children grow out of these aversions to food? Absolutely. Some of them do, right? And that's the burning question and really where the research needs to go is how can we differentiate the kids who will just grow out of this and the kids who will persist? And that is what we don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, in one of the pieces I was reading about some of your work, I was reading about adults. There's a website for adults who have these same kinds of persistent sensory problems with food. And I wonder, you know, as a psychologist, how do you counsel these people who have now moved from childhood to adulthood and find that eating out or eating with friends is really a problem? it certainly becomes more complicated. You know, the longer you have something, the harder it is to treat and manage. 
Yeah. And oftentimes they're presenting for treatment, right? And so there's some, there's two groups of people. If you're thinking about adults who are sensitive eaters, ones who are have learned to cope with it and, and ones who are not coping it with so well. And so I think that there's a lot that we need to learn from adults who are sensitive eaters who have not changed the way that they eat, but they've learned how to live with it. Mm-hmm. And then and then there's ones who it's so impairing that they want to get treatment for it. And they come to treatment usually because exactly what you said, it's interfering with their relationships, it's interfering with their health, or they're terrified that they're going to be a bad role model for their children. Mm-hmm. Now, if people want to learn more about your work and find places for help, where do you tell them to go? There is a wonderful um, program out of Colorado, the SOS program, that deals with more of the sensory-based feeding. So oftentimes we'll try to find local providers trained in that method. We'll certainly, if they're local to us or they want to travel to Durham, North Carolina, we, of course, would be happy to see them. I'm concerned about families that don't have the resources but that do have the problem in the home. Yeah, I think that we have, you know, where the research needs to go and where we need to help pediatricians is we really need to develop tools to give to pediatricians for families. Right. Well, is there anything, Dr. Zucker, out of this report, as well as some of your other research, that you'd like to bring to our listeners in the few minutes that we have remaining? Sure. I, I think a couple findings, I think, are important for exonerating parents. And one of those is that these children certainly had higher anxiety and depressive symptoms, but they did not have higher conduct order and oppositional defiant disorder symptoms, which are disorders where we really think about defying authority, acting out. So yeah. These are not just difficult kids, yeah. right? And, that, and I think that's like a popular myth. Right. And that these families also had higher levels of conflict, the both moderate and severe selective eaters, than families without a selective eater. And to us, that you know, that indicates these families are not just accommodating to their child's wishes and another myth about selective eating. Yeah. Now, is there a website that you'd like to direct our listeners? If they go to dukeeatingdisorders.com, that will link them to our research website where we keep updates on the latest research that we're doing if they're interested in learning more. Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. I think that we could easily spend hours together talking about different levels of disordered eating. I think you were interviewed in the New York Times, and one of the things that you said that I would like to hammer home is this idea of how important it is to have family mealtime and not to worry about the food as much as we think about the mealtime as being a sacred space. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you find that that's something that's been eroding out of our society? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the data is pretty clear about that, about the importance of family meals, about how protective they are for children. You know, family meals that are regular and, and a priority for families, that when families that designate that as an expectation that everyone shows up, it's been found to be preventative of all kinds of both physical and mental issues that it just seems to be if you're going to put your energy somewhere, it's making that a time, that making it happen, right? It doesn't have to be dinner time, you know, but a time where the family sits down together with regularity and shares a meal. And I think that that is one of the tragedies of having a sensitive eater is that that's just become a battleground. Right. Well, just to give a little bit of comfort to our listeners, this is not a 
pick, while picky eating may be fairly common around children as we know it, this more selective or sensory eating is much less common, but we will direct people to the Duke Eating Disorders site so that they can learn more. And in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Nancy Zucker, Director of the Center of Eating Disorders at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina, and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Dr. Zucker. This has been fascinating. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure.